With support from the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, I'm Chris Damgan. And I'm Ryan Kruger. Welcome to Pints with Planners. On today's episode of Pints with Planners, we will be joined by Cynthia Bowen, President of the American Planning Association, or APA. She is here to discuss the creation of memorable community spaces. Here is Cynthia's background, in her own words. My name is Cynthia Bowen. I am the President of the American Planning Association. I'm also the Director of Planning for Rundell, Ernstberger & Associates. And a lot of my work focuses on various aspects of planning, including redevelopment, urban design, and creating spaces for communities to create economically viable communities and neighborhoods. Before we begin this episode, some context on the show format is important to share with our first-time listeners. Pints with Planners is recorded in a live setting that captures the nuances of conversations over a pint. These broadcasts can include background conversations or other background sounds, as our mobile studio allows us to visit a variety of locations to meet with our guests. As you listen to this podcast, imagine you are sitting with us, joining in our discussion of the global challenges we are witnessing on our street corners. Thank you for tuning in for this broadcast of Pints with Planners. We now join our conversation with Cynthia Bowen about creating memorable community spaces recorded in October 2017 in Portland at the 53rd Isocarp Congress. We always like to open our shows with a couple of icebreakers, kind of get to know each other a little bit better. We've talked a little bit and uh, build up to our sit down today, but you know, kind of just getting off on that uh, foot where we understand a little bit more about some of the nuances about what makes us people. So I know that I was curious uh, when we were looking at some of our different icebreakers for this show, you've been to a lot of uh, workshops, you've been to a lot of different conferences. What's been your favorite mobile workshop that you've attended? That's a So my favorite mobile workshop was probably in New Orleans, and it was the introductory. We always do a, you know, getting to know your community and getting to know the place where you're going to a conference. And so I I love New Orleans, and but it was fabulous to see the historic neighborhoods, to see um, how the downtown has redeveloped. And um, so I, I like that a lot. That was Probably the most memorable one. Plus, I was I was on there with my um, friends, and so that always makes it a good time. New Orleans, it's hard to have a bad time in New Orleans. It's definitely an amazing city. And Chris, you were saying that you actually went down to an OPA, uh, APA conference down there uh, not that long ago. Yeah, I, it was, I think, about seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the previous time uh, the national conference was, was held in New Orleans, and by the way, I guess we should plug uh, APA 2018 National Conference in New Orleans. You're yep. welcome. It'll yes. will be sent to you later. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with Cynthia, but uh, I'll, I'll switch it up. Uh, I also got to do a, a mobile workshop in, in New Orleans, but uh, one that, that also comes to mind, and this was actually when I was in, in grad school back at, at Clemson University back in the great state of South Carolina, uh, we had our state conference in the uh, mini New Orleans, if I can call it that, of Charleston, oh. a beautiful city, as we all know, uh, has made the uh, great places list a couple of times. Uh, I recall uh, back in 2005 or six, uh, we had a conference there. Joe Riley, the great Joe Riley, mayor, former mayor of Charleston, was there, and uh, he and his staff gave us a tour of Upper King Street, which uh, at that time was still a very rough and tumble neighborhood of older furniture stores and uh, the tremendous amount of uh, adaptive reuse potential uh, was absolutely evident and you could see the initial steps that the city was doing from uh, purchasing dilapidated buildings, working on streetscaping, and now to see it 10 years later, if you haven't been to Charleston, by the way, go. But if you go now, Upper King is by far and without a doubt the place where the restaurants want to go, where the hotel and lodging facilities are going, and is just an absolute beautiful, vibrant extension of what Charleston always was uh, for middle and lower parts of King Street. And now it's up and down the entire peninsula, and it's a tremendous space. So 
And I can attest to that. I was actually just down in Charleston uh, three weeks ago, and we spent quite a bit of time on Upper King Street. It is an exceptionally developed area. It's a good lesson in urban planning. I would absolutely recommend our listeners go down there and check it out. You know, oh, and, and get about, a Moscow Mule, too, while you're oh, down there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a beer show, but uh, we can make exceptions here. Well, I'm going to give one more shout out in my response to this question, the South Carolina chapter of the American Planning Association. I went down there and was on a brewery tour uh, with former APA president Carol Ray oh, wow. um, and joined her for that tour. And it was just eye opening to see how we can talk about breweries and manufacturing in a more holistic, complete community type of way uh, from what we've, you know, manufacturing in the past used to be. Uh, a little bit more isolated, but now we're seeing these places, these spaces being really utilized for community engagement. And I think it was a really in- interesting and intriguing tour while we were down there. So I-, I-, I really appreciate the tours that are set up for all these different conferences, and I would absolutely recommend if you end up making it to a conference that's uh, put on by a local chapter of the American Planning Association, try and get on some of the mobile tours. I would completely agree. It's the best way to really see their community and see see planning in action. In action, yep. On a lighter note, okay. <laughs> on a lighter note, um, we are rapidly approaching uh, Halloween. Uh, we're recording this the week before. Uh, I am curious to hear if there is a particular scary movie that you will refuse to watch due to some uh, childhood uh, freakout or, or just something that you uh, have never liked doing. Is, is there one that, that grabs to mind? And mind you, you're also... Uh, 50 minutes away from Timberline Lodge where The Shining was filmed. So Portland <laughs> and our environs has um, a reputation. Okay, well, I do like scary, you know, ghost stories. And I do love to take the tours in the town in the evening that tells you about the ghosts intermixed with the history of uh, the community. So um, I think that's, I always, I'm always a sucker for those. I'm probably, but I do, there are some scary movies that even at my age will keep me up at night. Probably the one is Chucky or Chucky's Bride. So, um, yes. And then, you know, just every time, then you see a doll or a clown that's in a corner and you're like, oh, please, let's let's not be having any of that. I can appreciate that. I, I actually just saw the most recent version of It. And I, it doesn't hold a candle to the original as far as scare factor goes. I, I would say it is still one of those that I have to be right in the right mind and the right mood to be able to sit down and watch that. How about you, Chris? Actually, it's the Halloween series, and I have a personal uh-huh. account to it. Uh, Jason and all that. Um, there was a Boy Scout camp, which uh, when I was growing up in northern New Jersey, it was um, a, a camp that was located about an hour and a half west of New York City, kind of near the Pennsylvania border with the Delaware River. And uh, one of the, I don't recall if it was the original or one of the sequels was actually filmed at that camp. And there were always stories. And of course, when you're at that formative age, you, you really wonder, oh, how much of this is accurate? Is he still lingering in somewhere? So um, any of those movies are off limits for me, even at the uh, uh, the age I'm at right now. <laughs> well, that's good to know. I'll, I'll make sure. That I'll, I'll keep that in the back of my mind if I ever really want to truly scare you to dress up like Mike Myers. And I think that I'll probably maybe out of a job after that, too. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's dive in. Uh, We were going to talk about the American Planning Association here at the top of our uh, questions, and we really wanted to understand a little bit more in your perspective, in your role, what are some of the topics that are at the top of the list for the future of that uh, that organization? Oh my gosh, there are so many. Of course, you know, the American Planning Association is the big umbrella, the big tent for almost any type of planning that is done not only in the United States, so around the world. And so there are many different topics that we deal with from, you know, just running the organization on a day-to-day basis to then addressing planning issues and how to keep, get our members prepared for that. And so, of course, we have a list of things that we're always working on. Probably first and foremost and at the top of the list is social equity and creating inclusive communities. Um, That's a big one that I've been talking about recently, and we're in the process of establishing a task force to take a look at that issue and figuring out what are the tools and the best practices 
that planners can employ in their communities to talk about this issue and then also ensuring that their communities are inclusive of everyone. Another one I would, another topic I would suggest is smart cities. You know, here we are at the ISOCARP conference as well as the APA Oregon conference. They did a joint conference this year talking about smart cities, smart communities. Well, technology is changing within our communities and it's really going to impact the way we plan. And so we need to understand what that technology is and how that's going to affect our communities because we can't wait until it, the technology is here and happening because then we're just reacting to the problem. So APA is doing a lot of research in ter- to, into smart cities and specifically focusing on autonomous vehicles right now because we know that's going to be the kind of the first forefront. And so we've held a symposium on that with a variety of our partners and so we hope to be able next year to release some information to all of our members and even to the public on what are going to be the impacts to our communities. Infrastructure is also a big one. You know, we've seen the things that have happened in Flint, Michigan. We've seen the, the bridge collapses. And we know that our infrastructure is at a critical state, and we're not doing a very good job of maintaining and managing that. So again, in order to help us prepare, and again, someday we're going to get this bill for infrastructure, but we need to make sure that we have a voice in that. And so I'm appointing a task force. I've actually appointed a task force that's getting underway. So we have our local task force that is just of APA members to focus on infrastructure and how what that means to our members' communities. But also we have a task force that's national in focus where we've invited AIA, ASLA, a- ASCE, and others to be members on this task force so that we could jointly figure out what's best for the United States. Now, just for the uninitiated, the AIA, ASLA, those are organizations, professional organizations for what group? Yes, yeah, so the AIA is the architects, the American Institute of Architects. ASLA is the American Society of Landscape Architects. AC. ACEC, so it's the American Society of Civil Engineers. So all of these groups who um, all have some emphasis and some workings in infrastructure, it's important to have them all at the table. Getting all the voices in the same room or at least having those organizations represented in those conversations. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Well, we all, we all have a common vision, and it's better if we figure out what that is instead of leaving that up to our elected officials to try to interpret that. Mm-hmm. So one question kind of dovetailing off that, and, and I know you, you, I think you referenced uh, the APA principles for new federal infrastructure investment policy. That's really going to be uh, um, giving a lot of uh, direction for us. But uh, as local, for a lot of us, we are local practitioners. You know, we are dealing with our uh, elected officials at a municipal or county level. Um, what can local jurisdictions uh, begin to, um, to have that conversation and what, potential strategies, whether they be uh, code or policy-based recommendations, can we get going with uh, at this point, Uh, obviously knowing that there'll be larger conversations to aid us down the road? Well, I think the biggest one is really getting everybody in the room to talk. I don't know how many communities that I've worked in where you had the planning department maybe doing their comprehensive plan update. And you have the transportation department doing their thoroughfare plan update. But they're all doing it kind of in a bubble and a vacuum. Even though they're engaging with the public and their elected officials, the two departments are not together and talking. And so just getting them all in the same room and talking about this is what our plan is for growth or for redevelopment. And these are the infrastructure needs that we have in order to make this successful and make our community successful Let's figure out how to work hand-in-hand and make that happen and then look at it from a capital improvements program. So, you know, I've done this recently. The city of Franklin, Tennessee, um, last year, I guess it was earlier this year, I completed a comprehensive transportation network plan for them called Connect Franklin. 
And they, because of the way their community was developing, they were really looking at the forefront of we need to get our planners and our transportation engineers together and talk about how land use is impacting their road network and vice versa. So they really then created a comprehensive plan that was based off data and models from the land use department to really create this comprehensive network that looked at not only how is our community going to continue to develop and at what density, but then also looked at it from a car and truck standpoint, pedestrian and bicycle, as well as a bus system, and how all those things can be integrated together to get their people from one place to another. And so I think that's really, it, should, it shouldn't be revolutionary, but it is. And so if we could really just get our planners and our engineers together to have that conversation, that's the, that's the giant step in the battle right there. And you mentioned Franklin, um, and, you know, this is also kind of segueing a little bit into kind of our topic at large, and I know a big focus of APA as far as um, discussing, um, you know, great places and, and um, you know, successful, memorable community spaces. And Franklin actually is a great example of that. They have that lovely town square there in the middle of the community. Um, how do you see kind of future trends of that uh, in, in autonomous vehicles, in the future of e-commerce and how that might impact, you know, mom-and-pop retail. Uh, how, how are those conversations continuing to play out, and ha- do you see a shift in how cities are adjusting their comprehensive plans or zoning ordinances or, or other policy documents? Yeah, I think th- there's, there's two different issues there, uh, or two different approaches that you could take with it. You know, the first is kind of the town square, that public space there that people gather for festivals or they do their shopping, like a main, in, in most communities, this is their main street. So in that particular situation, you know, we're seeing this shift within our culture where we're going, instead of having our traditional bricks and mortar, everything's being driven by the internet now. And so we're seeing a lot of closures within stores. So it's, it's for us as planners figuring out then, you know, what do we do to help keep those spaces to be robust? And it comes down to really creating and in introducing mixed uses. You know, the, the old zoning ordinances back in the day, the Euclidean ordinances looked at separating all of the uses. You know, we need to have industrial over here. We need to have residential in one area. We need to have our park over here centrally located so everybody can get to it. And so today's thinking is, no, we really need to have the intermixing of those uses that we need office or retail on the bottom floor and upper floors with residential. And that is what people and communities want, whether you're kind of the kid that's coming out of school and getting their first job and wanting to work in in a walkable environment close to where all the action's happening to kind of the baby boomers whose kids have already left and they want to downsize from the potential suburban home down to something smaller where they're not taking care of a yard. And again, they have access to parks, to dining, to other entertainment avenues. And so those are the trends that we're seeing. And so I think it's important that planners kind of keep up and keep our pulse on what's happening in our community, what the value system of our community is so you can really plan for it. Now, the second approach that I would say also looks at a community space as a park and a gathering space and then developing around it. And so again, it's still going to be mixed use, but then you have a very targeted community space that people are going to, you know, whether it's to go in and have recreation and exercise. Maybe it's taking your children to the park and letting them run out all of their energy. Maybe it's meeting a a business colleague for coffee and talking about what the next steps are in a project. So that public space becomes really critical. But then what we see is for every type of residence or business, that is located next to a public space, 
the price per square foot in terms of value is greatly, you know, more better than if you were, if you're just living on a neighborhood street or within your downtown. Uh, that has been proven by City Lab and others. And so, like I said, there's two, there's two different types of spaces. There's two different types of approaches of what you want to see within a community. And I think that that really segues nicely. You know, we talked, Chris, you were highlighting there that the subject of this episode is creating memorable community spaces. And there you've highlighted a number of those conduits and a number of those reflection points that we highlight when we're thinking about those memorable community spaces. And the cover of the most recent edition of Planning Magazine from the APA talks about 10 years of great places. Like I said, our show today is creating memorable community spaces. Let's talk about some of the most memorable community spaces that you've encountered during your career. Give us some examples. We've already highlighted a couple. What are some of the others that you might say, hey, people, if you live in these areas, go check these out. Okay. Well, the first one that comes to mind is Bryant Park. Um, You know, I had always heard it being talked about. And then I thought I was in New York. We were doing a girls weekend. And I said, and it was snowing. And I'm like, we have to go to Bryant Park. And so when I got there, you know, it's not an incredibly large space, but they had kind of booths and they had programming and activities. So you could have hot chocolate, you can ice skate, you could go around and shop. And it really was an active space. It really was engaging. And I thought, you know, how could such, frankly, for New York, such a tiny space be so valuable And it really is all the time and investment that that not-for-profit is put into that space to make it active. And so, you know, we spent a whole afternoon there. Another one that comes to mind is um, Campus Marshes in Detroit. Now, of course, it's also a favorite because I do have to say it was one that my firm, Rondell Ernstberger, designed But I think, you know, this was back before Detroit was in its renovation, in its rebirth period. And there really was this great thinking about how can we take this monument and how can we make this space better and usable with folks. And so, you know, we set out from a design perspective to begin to look at what are the features that you need. And so now they have this great public space that is in the heart within the downtown. They've had to realign some of the roads, but the traffic flows better. But now they have this space where people want to go. They want to engage. They go out there on their lunch breaks. They go out there after work. I mean, they have even brought in sand to bring the beach to downtown Detroit. Hmm. But then the other most fascinating thing that you began to see is that all these corporations decided we need to be located next to that space because it's going to enhance the quality of the life of the people who work for me. And so it's really been a fight. But then what you've seen is that has led the rebirth and the redevelopment of that entire area. Now, again, the other thing that also happens, which is which is unfortunate, but a reality for us planners is it also starts to cause or create gentrification where you have an area that has, you know, been maybe neglected spaces in communities that have been neglected that the city decides we need to reinvest in this area. We need to figure out how to make it better. And again, going to the public space, a space where people can identify with and can gather in is, again, from a design perspective and from a budget perspective, really low maintenance. But the transformation that occurs in a neighborhood then potentially moves people out of their neighborhood because rents rise, prices rise, and they can't afford to live there. So that is something that we as planners need to be mindful in figuring out how to address when you know, looking at how we plan our communities. And I guess that that's actually a question we were going to think about asking, and, and you kind of uh, touched on the topic here. Um, do you see particular strategies when you think of places like, say, Bryant Park, which 
does have pretty good accessibility so other parts of the city or the region can get to it. I mean, is accessibility one way to perhaps cure some of the um, situations where these great places don't become exclusive enclaves? Um, you know, are there other strategies that us policymakers can do or implement uh, to ensure that that doesn't happen and that great places continue to remain great places for everybody? Mm-hmm. Now, that's an interesting point. Um, yes, I think it's definitely something that we need to think about. Um, you know, we shouldn't stop trying to create places and areas for our neighborhood, our neighborhoods. Um, every city needs great places. Um, every neighborhood should have some place to call their own. But yes, as planners, I think we have to think about what those impacts are and then what are some of the strategies. You know, one thing that we're looking at in terms of what I do on a daily basis with communities is, is there a way that you can tie the incentive? You know, so most communities will provide to developers some type of incentive. Maybe it's money from a TIF district, a tax increment financing district. Maybe it is we'll go in and put in uh, water and sewer or fiber optic. So then tying some type of, if you will, improvement to that. So you go into you go to the developer and you say, all right, we will give you money to help build this grand space, to build your office building, to build this apartment, um, this housing complex. But in order to receive that, you need to provide X percent in affordable housing. You need to develop this park here that people have access to. So we as planners really have to think outside the box of, you know, how can we have this partnership with the for-profit or the private industries that are creating this transformation in our communities, but ensuring that we're planning for all people. And again, going back to that point of being inclusive. One question also I have for you too, when you mentioned the Bryant Park example, you you talked about the uh, not-for-profit organization that kind of acts as a steward. Is that a fair description of of that area in addition to New York parks? But yes. (coughs) Excuse me. Edit that out. Um, um, how important is that to have that um, champion organization or champion individuals to ensure, um, I guess, community ownership and pride of, of that place uh, for a long-term sustainable, um, uh, long-term sus- the long-term sustainability of a great place? Yeah, I think it's critical. I mean, just like when we do plans, we always say we need a champion of a plan. Anytime you create a space, you need champions and you need, you need ownership. Let's face it, budgets within our communities are getting smaller. They're getting tighter. And so they don't, they may, they may be able to get a grant to create a space, to redevelop an area, but they're not going to have the money to maintain it. And so we really have to be thinking about how do you know, what's the long-term maintenance of all these areas? You know, we, we have the old model of kind of homeowners associations, but we know that those can be defunct. And it was something that we saw with the economic downturn. People were defaulting on their mortgages. Well, they certainly weren't paying their homeowner dues, and there was no way they can maintain that space. So I think we really have to think about, you know, what is kind of the end product you create this great space, but then how is a city or how is an area going to maintain that? And I can give you an example of that. Um, looking at the Indianapolis Cultural Trail, you know, when we came in and started designing that trail, it's an it's an eight mile urban trail within the city of Indianapolis that connects eight of the various cultural districts around the city. Well, the city of Indianapolis did not, doesn't have the resources to maintain that linear trail. And so we really had to think about, okay, if we're going to create this great piece, this great public network to connect to the regional greenway, we got to make sure that this could be carried on in perpetuity. And so what, how we approached it was creating an endowment 
So having, you know, we have generous benefactors within a community. Every community has someone who wants to donate to a good cause. And so, you know, finding those people and then being able to create some type of endowment to maintain that space. So in the case of the Indianapolis Cultural Trail, they created a not-for-profit, ICT Inc., and so it has its own executive director. It has its own staff. So they're responsible for maintaining the plants, keeping the trail clear of snow in the winter, making sure they're washing it down. Make, if a bollard gets hit, replacing that. And so it still it becomes a natural amenity for the city, but the city doesn't have maintenance and ownership of it. And it's the same thing with Grant Park. You know, again, it's a similar model that we looked at. So with Bryant Park, they have a not-for-profit foundation who is there specifically to oversee the programming and what is happening in that area, maintaining that and ensuring that it continues on forever. And that's really, you hit the nail right on the head there with the maintenance aspect of it. We're actually talking about in Troutdale, we've looked at a couple of different uh, development opportunities there, creating some additional community spaces. And one of the concerns that our citizens have uh, expressed is that maintenance aspect of the plans. And I think it's a very uh, consistent and ultimately appropriate comment uh, on that particular, uh, on a lot of those different outcomes, because you have to figure out how you're going to be able to maintain them in perpetuity. You mentioned before talking about inclusivity. One of the things that we're, you know, as young planners, those that are, you know, kind of coming up in the profession, we're trying to find creative ways for community engagement, creative ways for creating more inclusive communities. Do you have some strategies or some really effective community engagement tools that you've seen that have been really impactful and that you're, you know, a big fan of? Well, it's funny you should you ask that question. Um, I don't know that I have the answer to that. As a matter of fact, um, I have created a task force who is really going to address the future of public engagement. And the reason why I say this and, and why, I, why I think that's important is because, you know, gone are the, are the days of the traditional meeting, you know, where you come in and you stand up and you give this speech about this is what the project's about, this is what the plan is, Okay, someone come up to the microphone and tell us what you like and don't like about it. People don't have the time to do that every week in and out for every project. But likewise, on the flip side, you know, we have the millennial generation. God help you. Yes. Well, and they're all stuck in their phones. And so, you know, my concern is you still aren't going to be able to go completely digital and to engage people in that from that perspective, that avenue, because there are going to be people who are anti-technology. They're going to be people who just don't know how to do it. And so, and the other thing that's kind of concerning is, are these planners whose heads are in their technology, do they know how to get out into a community and have a face-to-face conversation? Because still, at the end of the day, we are planners that have to plan for the value system of our communities. And if you can't have a conversation with someone to understand what their value system is, you're not going to be a very successful planner and you're not going to have a very good plan. So, you know, the things that I do right now is I sit down with the staff and I say, all right, what works in your community? How do you get the most engagement? And nine times out of ten, it's a combination of things. Um, But again, it's going to be some things that are outside of the box. So right now we find ourselves going to a lot of festivals and fairs. So having a booth there so that we could talk about a project or the plan so people can walk by. We make it flashy, we make it catchy, and we make it interactive so that people are willing to stop by and give us information. So recently I was in a, doing a neighborhood plan and the school was having a movie night. And so, you know, parents were going to be bringing their kids there. So we actually came up with an exercise for the parents and an exercise for the kids. Now, of course, the kids loved it because it was dots. 
We got to talk about, you know, where do you ride your bike to? You know, what are the places that you want to go? And so, you know, they wanted to put dots all over the place. Now, of course, you have to help them read the map and and you kind of have to corral them so you don't have dots everywhere on the map. But again, it's just an example of you have to engage on all different levels. You know, likewise, you have to engage the young. You have to engage high schoolers or college-age students because those are the folks who are really going to be in the community that you're planning in the future. And we certainly don't want them looking back in 20 years and going, you just totally screwed up my community. Thanks, planner. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that. Gosh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, we're, we're about to launch a, a town center plan update in our community. And uh, one of the ways I was able to convince somebody that it was a worthwhile exercise because our current town center plan is almost 20 years old. I said, when this plan was drafted, one of your city councilors was in kindergarten. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. And, yes. and I mean, you know, and another one was in eighth grade and another one was in 10th grade. I mean, who are we planning for, in fact? And it's, it's, I love, I loved hearing that. That's been phenomenal. Well, I mean, again, it, it, I mean, it's the case. When, you know, I'm out at a public meeting and you have folks saying, no, we don't want to see development in this area. And, you know, the comment that you try to gently break to them is, I understand what you think about, but when you transfer that property onto, you know, especially in a rural community, you transfer that property onto your child who doesn't want to be a farmer the first thing they're going to try to figure out how to do is how do I sell this property to get rid of it? And so thereby, then that's how you end up with development. And if you don't plan for it, it's not going to be realistic. But it also, you know, kind of going back, it also means engaging people within their medium. So again, while you you need to do face-to-face, I've still done mailings to communities through the mail to say we're having a public meeting. um, I did that about a month ago, and we had 250 people show up because most of them had gotten the mailing. So still, some of the old techniques do work. But I also use online tools, SurveyMonkey, and some of the other platforms to engage folks. You know, Twitter, Facebook, to push them to a project website. You know, we put surveys on there to allow them to give us feedback on scenarios. So it's a low-cost way to still engage your residents and ensure that they have a voice throughout the process. Because ultimately what that is, is you want those people to have voices. And I think probably the third component to this is, you know, again, it, it goes back to APA. And, you know, one of the things that we're looking at is how do we ensure that we have diversity in our profession? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, the people who come to the meetings and they want to talk to us, other planners, they want, they want their planners to look like them, to you know, have a common language, to sound the same way, with the same dialect. And if we aren't increasing our diversity in, the, in our planners, then you know, we're going to have trouble engaging our diverse communities in the in the future because the demographics of our nation are changing. And so, you know, that's the other component. So even now, trying for me to try to figure out if I am in a Hispanic community, if I'm in an Asian community, then reaching out to the groups that can help do the translation, who can bring, you know, we get a trusted leader in the community who I have conversations with and then are able to lead a group with, you know, with folks to talk about what their concerns are and what they want to see planned in their community. I think it's critical. It's a critical part of the public engagement process. Well, and that authenticity is really, it's an absolutely required component of what we do to go in and try and, you talk about looking and talking and, and, and acting the same, we have to engage those that are really going to help build our support networks. And it takes leadership. And, you know, that's one area that as leaders we have to recognize, we have to reach out to other leaders, and, and there are opportunities for us, for us to lead and opportunities for us to step back and be a part of the organizational structure and be a part of those organizations that are doing that work 
Now, staying on the topic of leadership, you've uh, you've got an active Twitter handle, um, which if you I'd love you for you to provide that to our uh, listeners. You've got an active Twitter feed. Uh, in the last few months, you've mentioned a number in a number of postings. Uh, you've discussed leadership, and you know as we're talking about leadership and creating memorable community spaces. How might you define a leader in those uh, more succinctly than we've kind of uh, you know discussed already? How might you uh, describe a leader in those situations? Okay, that's a very good question. So my Twitter handle is at underscore Cynthia Bowen. Do you have a blue check? I don't know what that means. It means you're really official. <laughs> All right, know. listeners, go go follow her. Let's get her that blue check. Yeah. Okay, I don't Let's think get her I, legit. I, I don't think I have the blue check. I'll get so. you there. <laughs> So, but yes, leadership is incredibly important to me, uh, which is why um, I will tweet about it or I will talk about it on Facebook. It's also one of the things that I talk about as a leader in APA. You know, last year I was the chair of the leadership task force, you know, figuring out how do we give those skills to planners. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, planners really do need to be leaders within their community to create change and to be trusted. And I, I, I think, especially in today's age, with all the vitriol that you see within the community, with all of kind of the hatefulness that is being talked about, um, you really need people who can put that aside and lead. So I, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about that. So, you know, to your question, you know, how do I define leadership in creating memorable communities? Well, I think the number one quality in my book is you really need to communicate and you need to communicate well. So that means not only being able to communicate your ideas visually and verbally, but more important, it means listening and observing. You know, listening to what the community is telling you hearing what they're telling you, watching their body language to see how they're reacting to the concepts that you're presenting. So your job as the leader is to kind of observe that, interpret that, so you're giving the community what is what they want and what is best for them. You know, likewise, another characteristic I believe that is important is really being a good facilitator, a good facilitator of the process. So number one, as a planner, you need to know the process. We need to know the process forward and backward. But then you have to be able to facilitate it. And especially when you have a contentious issue and you have 200 or 300 people coming out to a community to be angry about that issue. You need to be able to get them settled, be able to get them into groups where you can get meaningful feedback that you can actually use and do something with. So, you know, not only listening, but being able to facilitate and, you know, choosing, you know, a little bit of that public engagement, choosing the right mechanism and the right output or to gain the input from, from the people. And I think the other thing is you also have to know as a facilitator when you need to shut things down. So, you know, if someone's going off on a tangent, if someone is um, taking up too much time or, or hogging the floor, if you will, then you, you need to be skilled at gently kind of moving on to, to the next segment. And that takes practice and it, does, and it, and it is a skill. And I think probably the last thing I would say about kind of leadership qualities is being good at managing people. Um, you know, I'd love to be able to say that I have all the skills necessary to solve every problem, and I don't. I <laughs> I know, even as the president We thought of we found the one person that was going to answer all our of our questions. Our dear leader, what happened? I know. <sighs> but you know what? You know what makes me a good leader? is because I have people who are smarter than me that surround me and help me in that process that I know, again, I don't have all the answers. So I need to get those people on my team and have them there so that we can solve the problem together. And again, that is another one of those key characteristics to be able to say, 
I don't have the answers to everyone, but you know what? I can get a team of people together. We can figure out the answers and I can get people who know more than me and who are more skilled than I am. And we will figure this out. And so, you know, I think with, you know, some of our leaders today, that's not something that's easily said, easily said, I don't have the answers to everything. I got to go find it out. You're the second guest that we've had that have almost mentioned humility or humbleness as far as approaching your approach to leadership and then bringing in people who can help form decision-making like that. Uh, I, th- I find that very profound that we hear it from two very different people who we've, we've interviewed. So, Well, you know, I heard it from one of my mentors. So I had a mentor who, who told me that, that he was only as successful because he brings in people that are smarter than him. And so that, you know, and I was pretty young in my career, and so that really stuck with me. So we've talked almost uh, a good chunk of this podcast about uh, creating and, and maintaining new meaningful community spaces. And I want to tie it also, as you, you talked about the changing demographics of our country, um, you know, how cerebral do we need to be and, and what strategies can we incorporate to allow for um, community spaces to continue to serve just as that, whereas maybe one person or one generation's vision for a community space may not necessarily jive with uh, a future generation or perhaps a different culture as, as demographics change. What strategies would you suggest or have you seen that uh, allow community spaces to continue serving in that role? Well, it's not... I guess it's not, it's more a series of characteristics. It's not specifically one design or one process that you use. Like I said, I think it's a a series of characteristics. And, you know, it's one that we employ, you know, when we're planning and when we're designing spaces. So the first thing is to be engaging, you know, figuring out and ensuring that that space is engaging with the people who need to use that space or who want to use that space. You know, accessible. You talked about accessible earlier. So um, it's one thing. You want to make sure that it's able to be active 24-7 and be safe. Another thing that I would say, or the second characteristic, is adaptability. You know, the space has to be many things to many different people. And so making sure that you're looking at it from a design perspective of, Again, what's the end user's needs? Is it a park where children need to come to because it's adjacent to the school? Is it um, an area that's in downtown near a bunch of offices and so maybe it needs to be more active? Maybe there needs to be a trail in there. You know, maybe there needs to be a performance stage. So the adaptability of a space to be able to handle all types of programming needs. Another characteristic, you know, we've talked about is a convener, you know, someone who's a champion of that space, someone who is looking out for the programming of it and the managing of that space. Um, I think we mentioned authenticity earlier. The space has to be authentic. You, it can't be trite or contrite. It can't be um, made up. It has to be comfortable for the people who are going to use it and for where that space is. It has to be like it fits. It absolutely has to be like it fits. That's right. Like, you know, a hand in a glove. The other thing is, you know, I have three more. So connected. The space needs to be connected, not only to its surrounding buildings, but how does it connect overall in the greater sense of the community? you know, to schools, to residences, to businesses, to the library. You know, how are we connecting to that space? You know, whether it's biking there, walking there, using mass transit, or even a car. We need to think about all those avenues. The space being iconic. So is there one particular feature? Again, it kind of goes back to authenticity. Is there something that represents that neighborhood or that area that could be a symbol for the community. And then the last one is transformative. You know, using that space to spur on economic development because it really does become an economic, an economic generator. 
And so I think if you really look at what are those things, like seven things that I rattled off there, I think if you keep those seven things in mind when you're looking at your public space, when you're trying to figure out, you know, what do we need to do? How do we reinvent this park? Or how do we take this old spare parking lot, bare parking lot that we have there to make it a a space? I think if you keep all those things in mind, that space will be um, timeless and will continue to grow and transform as the area around it changes. And that, that, that's really profound, having an understanding of sort of those uh, sort of checkpoints we might even go through as we're looking at some of our spaces and we talk about either retrofitting or creating new ones, having sort of an ideal uh, mindset of what we might need to uh, create within those proposals. And, and I think it's really important that you, know, you, you have some of those guidance. You know, one thing we haven't talked a lot about, uh, you've touched on a couple of times, but I think it's important to highlight here, APA isn't just for planners. The APA is for everyone. How might someone who's not a planner, what, some, what are some of the resources, uh, what resources might be most applicable uh, for those people that aren't planners in order to come to the APA and say, hey, I want more information on this or that? What's the best way for people to do that? Okay, well, of course, I would be remiss as the president of APA if I didn't tell you you should become a member. because. And in follow-up to that, is there a planning, uh, a groupie, a planning groupie membership? I've, I've had a lot of friends that like to be planning groupies, but they don't want to go full-fledged into planning. Is there any way we might be able to talk about a planning groupie Amateurs. Membership? They're just amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, we do have a group called Citizen Planners. Okay. Um, so there could be potential there. Um, but so one thing I should, you know, that I want to mention is that APA recently, um, transformed two of our different programs. The first one being our early career program that we kind of changed that over to kind of a new student type program where it doesn't matter what your age is in, in your life. If you're going back to school and you're enrolled in a college or a university, and it doesn't matter whether they're PAB accredited or not, as long as you're a student, you get free membership in APA and access to all of the resources that we have there. Now, for those people who, like you said, maybe want to be planning groupies, we also have, if you've never been a member of APA before, you can join our membership for 50% off the price. So again, it still gives you an avenue there. But I will say, you know, APA, we have a lot of resources. We have a research staff that does research on a variety of topics, autonomous vehicles, smart cities, um, all kinds of things like that. And, you know, some of that research is made available. You know, we recently had a partnership with HUD and creating the Prosperity Playbook, which is out there. It's an online tool and resource for people to to access about how they can incorporate affordable housing into their communities and how they help to redevelop areas. And so that partnership has gone even further. We're now in a second round with the National League of Cities, the Lincoln Institute, and some others, and I, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to remember to name all of them. But it's the second group that has come together that is working with another 30 cities around the country to share their experiences and their practices. And again, all of this is all of these are things that then we put on our website. Now, some of it is for members only. So. You know, back in January of this year, the board made a decision to open up the planning advisory service information to all of our planners. So, or all of our members, whether you're a planner or not, if you're a member, you get access to it. So it's all that research. It's all the planning advisory service reports that we've done. It's packets that have been put together. So anything that you can think of is accessed there. Honestly, that is worth its membership alone. I have used uh, PAS Planning Advisory Service for several years on a variety of topics. They deliver timely, really, really excellent info. So kudos to the staff in Chicago who do that. Uh, It's a terrific resource, and I'm really glad that it is now available to the general membership. It's it's a phenomenal 
I'll move on behalf of the board. Well, thank you. And yes, anytime I talk about it, members become very, very excited about it. So, but we do have information on our website that is, you know, outside within the public domain that anybody can get access to. So, you know, I always tell people, you know, start there, search our website, see what kind of resources that we have there. And then ultimately, if there are things that come up that you can't access, then hey, become a member. Because again, being a member of APA really is valuable to understand. I mean, we're there not only to provide education to our planners and our members, but non-planners alike. I mean, we have several books that we had published under Planners Press that talk about the importance of planning and the effect of planning on their community. So, you know, even if you're just getting into it. So those are some of the resources that we have. Outstanding. So we are supported, of course, by a partnership with the uh, Oregon chapter of APA. Uh, and the OAPA currently provides resources covering a wide variety of planning-related issues uh, in support of Oregon planners and, of course, APA certainly at the national level. I, uh, you mentioned uh, City Lab, which is a great resource uh, that's unaffiliated with, OA, with uh, APA, but uh, are there any other uh, resources, whether they be journalistic or professional organizations that may also be of interest to uh, planners or planning groupies, as my friend says? <laughs> well, there's all, there's all kinds of things. Of course, we have the Journal of the American Planning Association, which is geared more to academics. And, but there are some planners that really want to be on kind of that cutting edge of the research and understand what's happening there. And so um, that's always a good avenue. Um, I do spend time reading Atlantic Monthly, um, The New Yorker. Several of those really have great articles about urban planning. The, the other thing I do is I troll Twitter. You know, you talk about um, you talk about resources. So one of the things that I was told, or advice that I was given from a colleague, was you know look at your Twitter handle, look and see who follows you. Then look at the people that you follow, and determine you know look at who they're following. And so then go in and start following some of those organizations because then you end up with access to all kinds of information. You know, other organizations that are out there. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention ISOCARP with us being here. Gotta mention ISOCARP. Well, you have to, but I think the other thing is a lot of American planners really don't know that ISOCARP exists. Now, because again, ISOCARP is focused on the international planning stage and, you know, how are developing countries you know, what do they need to do regarding planning and what are their needs? So I think American planners do not always um, take a look at that, but they also have a variety of resources that you could look at. A UN Habitat is another resource. They, you know, put together the global policies for urban planning. And I think probably other things like Plan Edison and there are other groups out there that also offer other information. Um, Congress for the New Urbanism. You know, again, our partner organizations, AIA, ASLA. Everybody works in the realm of planning and around the issues that we talk about in planning. And so looking at the resources they have, it doesn't make you... Um, a traitor to the American Planning Association because you're looking to see what Plan Edison has or you're going to the AIA website. You know, it is our job as planners to make sure that we know a little bit about everything. And the only way that we're going to do that is by looking at these resources, by continuing to read, by coming to conferences and listening to the speakers and their experiences. You know, that's what also makes us better humans as well, because and makes us live longer because we're using our brain and thinking of new things and new techniques. And that's really profound as far as like when we think about uh, the different resources that are available, when we think about the different opportunities that we have in order to engage across different uh, mediums, I think it's important to consider the breadth of those things that are available. And you've hit a number there. We, in a previous broadcast, we actually talked a little bit about some of the very similar related uh, topics that you actually touched on there. So it's good to know that we're really honing in on some of those resources that might be very valuable. 
Now we're wrapping up here. We talked a little bit about uh, all. We've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, our mission really is discussing the global challenges we're witnessing on our street corners over a pint, obviously, mm-hmm. as we are here. Uh, thinking in the future, looking at other topics that we might want to consider, what might you highlight as maybe your top three topics we might want to consider for future broadcasts here at Pints with Planners? Okay. Well, I think the tough one to tackle goes back to kind of social equity and inclusive, creating inclusive communities. Um, it's really, you know, getting in depth about what we need to be doing. And, you know, there are, there are several people out there who have, who do work in this avenue, this arena, that pretty have some pretty profound things to say about what we as planners can be doing. You know, I've also engaged those people, like I said, in my task force. So, mm-hmm. but I think, you know, I think it could be interesting or getting a, the community's take on it, a community activist, a community leader. A second one that I would focus on is redevelopment of our suburbs. You know, while a lot of people live in a city, there are quite a lot of people that live in the suburbs. And, you know, we're starting to see some of the things that happened in the inner city starting to happen in the suburbs. You know, we touched a little on kind of the bricks and mortar and and what happens as, you know, more shopping comes to the Internet. And now with Amazon offering fresh delivery and and, um, to people's homes, that's that's going to continue to change the way. And so, you know, our our suburbs are auto dominated, not incredibly walkable. And, you know, we now have shopping centers that are empty. So, you know, how do we create great places out there? How do we redevelop those areas to keep them strong as well? So, you know, that could be an interesting topic to look at. And then the third one is really the impacts of the autonomous vehicles on community development. You know, as I talked about this morning in my speech, you know, planners are way behind the curve on planning for autonomous vehicles. And I think it's really going to have a huge impact on our communities, I mean, both positive and negatively. And so I think we need to be educated. We need to understand, um, you know, what does it mean to have an autonomous vehicle? How are these folks developing these vehicles? What, you know, what what is it that they want it to, to do? And then how is that going to impact our communities from, you know, transit ridership to increasing potentially pollution or emissions into an area to changing parking? We may not need as much parking than what, I mean, we're already saying that we're over parking. Do we need to build that parking garage? Exactly. That's yeah. terribly expensive for and the public to... I've, to I've, yeah, I've heard from actually some people who are in investment firms that typically can lend money. Some investment firms in some communities now refuse to do it unless there is an adaptive reuse of that parking garage if we ever get to that that point. So it's fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It is. So again, it's it's understanding kind of this newfangled technology, um, you know, the next avenue of in waves of issues that we as planners are going to have to address i think your listeners might be interested in well i can tell you i know chris and i have talked a lot about the autonomous vehicles social justice is very very high on our list of topics to consider social equity as well and so i think that you know having that reinforced now we'll really look to hone in on those topics and hope to have them on a future show i want to take the time to thank you so much for sitting down with us today it's been a pleasure to have you it's great to have you in portland and i hope you enjoy your time while you're out here chris anything you want to uh, leave our listeners with as we're closing. I'm, I'm disappointed to hear that you are not infallible. Yeah, <laughs> um, that, is, that you is, did not have all the answers we were looking shock. for. Uh, but I do believe you gave us some nuggets of wisdom, and we we sincerely appreciate you taking time out of a busy uh, conference calendar as you uh, travel across this great land and get ready for New Orleans to uh, to come see us. So. Uh, uh, I would say behind David Letterman, Ball State University, you've got a uh, second famous alum right here uh, joining our podcast. So there you we go. really appreciate uh, you, you coming.
coming by and, and uh, sharing a pint with us. Yes, cheers. Thanks. Thank you so, very much. Well, yeah. thank you. Thank you both. I think this is a great podcast that you guys have going here. We're above average. We'll, we'll keep that in there. We yeah. won't edit that comment out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Cynthia. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. On the next episode of Pints with Planners, we will be joined by Shipra Narang Suri, who is currently the Vice President of the International Society of City and Regional Planners, as well as the Coordinator of the Urban Planning and Design Branch at the United Nations Habitat. She will join us to discuss hazard mitigation planning and climate change. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Pints with Planners. And please, as always, plan responsibly. Additional support for Pints with Planners was provided by the Oregon Chapter of the American Planning Association. PWP's theme music was written by Chris Lusane. Haley Schiller is our graphic designer. Production and editing was handled by me, your host, Ryan Kruger. The views and opinions expressed on this episode are that of our guests and your hosts and may not necessarily reflect those of the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, the city of Troutdale, or any other affiliates of this program. If you have comments or questions, please visit the Pints with Planners Facebook page or you can send us an email at pintswithplanners at gmail.com. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of Pints with Planners.